from Rhythm and Light in Chicago, I'm Steve Ordauer, and welcome to Rhythm of Life. Today, guest host Bob Hercules sits down with the prolific author, journalist, and filmmaker Alex Kotlowitz. Alex is best known for his books exploring the intersection of poverty, urban violence, and race, which includes his landmark book, There Are No Children Here, which came out in 1992, and his newest book, An American Summer, Love and Death in Chicago, which just came out this year. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks for having me on. You know, when, I, when I, I've read all your books and I've listened to your radio shows and everything, and I, I started to realize... Uh, obviously you were trained or you had a lot of experience as a journalist, which is great, but I actually think of you as a storyteller. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that. Is, yeah. is that a fair assessment? Yeah, no, it is actually. In, fa- in fact, for many years, when people would ask me what I do, I would, my, my kind of glib response to them would be, you know, I'm an author, a journalist, but really what I am is a storyteller. Having said that, in these days uh, and times, I am really honored to be considered a journalist <laughs> yeah we need so, journalists yeah, uh, but um but no you're right i am a i mean it's what i love to do is to tell stories i mean i think story um i mean look as a kid i grew up my, my you know my dad was a writer and right. i just grew up in a household of books um and i love film um, and the, the beauty of stories is that they let you find your own way you know nobody's yelling at you nobody's lecturing you nobody's pandering you um, and it's also this really kind of cheap way as a reader or, or as a viewer of a film to, to sort of find your way into places you otherwise would never venture, you know, and to spend time with people you otherwise would never meet. Right. Um, and I love nothing more than a good story. And of course, the other part about storytelling is the kind of centripetal force of storytelling is empathy. Yes. You know, and God knows we are so lacking of empathy in these times. And uh, and so, and it's also the centripetal force of community. It's kind of what holds us together, mm. which connects us. Um, and so, yeah. So I love, I love telling stories. Did you find your way to like you start out? Uh, I know we'll get into your story in a second, but you know, you came from organizing to eventually being a journalist, somewhat accidentally, perhaps. But then, at some point, did you find your way uh, from being? like a traditional journalist into storytelling and how did that happen? Yeah. So, you know, I began at an alternative newspaper, so I was never kind of, I mean, I mean, I ended up with the wall street journal for 10 years, but, but even there I was kind of a non-traditional wall street journal reporter, Mm -hmm. but you know, I started this small alternative weekly and it was there that I realized, man, this is what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I was able to tell these craft, these narratives for this weekly newspaper and I got, you know, I had to push myself to go spend time in these neighborhoods, communities I otherwise would never have spent time in. Um, I think left to my own devices, I would just hole up in my house. And, uh, <laughs> and so the other thing I love about this work is it forces me out into the world. So it, it pushes you. Uh, it's not your natural inclination, it sounds like. No, I, in fact, it's really hard. I mean, I'm working on a story now. And like that, you know, those first phone calls I, are so hard to make because, you know, you're sort of worried that you're going to get this proverbial door shut in your face. And um, and I keep on reminding myself, I've been doing this for 40 years, that, you know, that's the worst thing that will happen is somebody will say, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. You know, but it, it it's hard. It's, yeah. 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 I want to go back and just to get... A little bit of your backstory, so we understand where you know what led to this. I know you grew up in New York. Yeah. Your father, as you said, was a kind of a famous magazine write, uh, editor and writer. He wrote uh, 
some books as well. Your mother, I guess, was a social worker. Right. And she was pretty prominent as well. So what was it like to grow up in New York with these two pretty important parents? Yeah. So my mom actually, I mean, my, my dad was, you know, he, as you say, you know, he worked at magazines and then found his way into public television and, um, and wrote these novels on the side. And so, um, and so I think through osmosis, I, you know, got the best of him. And my mom actually, she actually went back to school when we were in high school to become a social worker. So, um, and she carved out this really incredible career working at a city college, working with these first generation college students. Um, and so I got the best of her as well. Yeah. But I grew up, you know, I grew up on the west side of the city of Manhattan, which at the time was really different from what it is now. It was I'll a bet. really integrated neighborhood by race and by class and and because my dad was writing on the weekends my brother and I had to spend all our time out of the out of the apartment we had oh, a small, he didn't watch you in the in we had the a apartment. small we had a small apartment we had to get out of there so I would spend my weekends playing basketball oh. and so uh, and I grew up in this environment where you know I was hanging out with with kids of different races of different classes and you sort of you know you assume this is how everybody right. grows up and then right. you get out into the world and you realize how extraordinary it was in yeah. some ways um and uh and so and that and also i think i was really influenced by the times you know, it was the 1960s yeah and you couldn't it was in the zeitgeist i mean you couldn't not be talking about the place of race uh in this country um uh you know of course that we had the war going on and so it you know it, it politicized you i was you know i'm from 64 so growing up in you know i was in my early teens in the, in the sixties. Um, and so aware, not fully engaged in all that, but I remember going to the anti-war rallies and, and so you, it's sort of, you know, you, you realize you on the one hand love this country. And one of the things you love about this country is, is in some ways, given all its flaws is that you're able to stand up and mm -hmm. try to make some difference and, uh, voice and protest your, if you need protest to. if you need right. to. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then when I went off to college, I actually wanted to be a biologist. It was my love. I loved, and then I took a organic. biologist. It, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. But I took organic chemistry and realized <laughs> I was not cut out for the sciences. Uh, not going to so happen. So I kind of got, I kind of got depressed. I dropped out of school for a while, and when I, I ended up in Atlanta working, I got this. I was on my way down to New Orleans to just see if I could find a job, and uh -huh. met this Episcopalian minister and. Atlanta, who had opened a settlement house in the south side of the city in this neighborhood that was the second poorest census tract in the country, second to Watts, and ended up spending close to a year there working as a community organizer, working a lot with kids, organizing around welfare rights and housing issues. Um, How did you learn to be an organizer? Did he train I, you or I just, just threw I, you into I, it? Or? I learned there. But, you know, it wasn't something I was really cut out for. It's, uh -huh. I mean, I, I, it was a transformative year, mm -hmm. and I loved that my time down there, um, I mean, exposed me uh, to the profound poverty in our cities that um, it changed me. I, there's no question about it. But I also realized I wasn't cut out for that that life as a kind of political activist. Um, what did you take away from that, though? Because I know you, you probably know I made a film about community organizing right. the story of Saul Alinsky. And even me as the kind of outside observer, when I when I filmed those training sessions and went on the went you know on the streets with the organizers, yeah. I learned personally so much. I think in some ways it was the most profound mm -hmm. for me personally film I've ever made because I learned so much about organizing, which I found to be a very universal mm -hmm. uh, uh, tactics. 
I wonder what you learned from organizing. Yeah, so, I mean, a couple things. One, I worked a lot with kids there. And so it, um, it I think for me, it kind of um, reinforced the capacity of people to change. You know, I was working with young kids and I, you know, stayed in touch with many of them and saw them change, some for the better and some for the worse. Um, but then with the organizing, you know, there was a kind of irreverence about it that I really admired. That yeah. I, I don't I, that I don't find easy, um, and uh, and these especially these women uh, when we were organizing around welfare rights and we go down to the state house, um, I just admire this their ability and capacity to sort of stand up and look uh, their. You know, they're basically their enemy in the face, yeah. Um, and confront them and do it in a way that didn't feel um, uh, in all threatening, mm-hmm. but felt like you need to talk to me. You know, yeah. you need to answer give me to respect. Me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, and it's funny. You know, years later, when I was in Michigan working at this paper, I worked a lot with Michael Moore up in Flint when he was right. doing his alternative paper, and I loved working with Michael. I really admired him. I, I and one of the things I admired was again his, his irreverence. You know, yeah. I couldn't match that. I just um, he has just, a real gift for it. Obviously, this is Michael Moore. I am here to make a citizen's arrest of the board of directors of AIG. Congressman, trying to get members of Congress to get their kids to enlist in the Army and uh, go over to Iraq. Yeah, he doesn't come to most of us. <laughs> Governor Snyder, I got some Flint water for you. We're actually here to make a citizen's arrest. Speak to my supervisor. In the white shirt, yep. blue tie. That's it. Uh, receding hairline. But but when I was community organizing, I mean, I realized the power of just sort of standing up for, you know, ultimately what you believe. I mean, it seems so simple in some ways. Yeah. Um, I know that organizers used humor a lot from what I right. when I had done my film right. because it takes the boss down a notch. Right. It's kind of a labor right. organizing right. technique, right. frankly. And I think it's a it's a helpful technique uh, to do that, to use humor. But you're saying it doesn't come to you naturally. You don't. I get I get angry. You know, yeah. I you know, when I there are things that anger me in the world, it's hard yeah. for me to have maintain that kind of sense of humor. And uh, um, and that's I, so I really admired it, especially among these women. That yeah, they just. Uh, yeah, I mean, they did it with a smile, you know, and I'm not it, sure I could have done that with a smile. Right. Yeah. Why did you uh, get out of that? You only did that for a year, but yeah. it obviously yeah. made a big impact. on right. it. Why, why leave community organizing? Right. Well, I went back to college. I got real po- politically active. You um, went to Wesleyan. I went to Wesleyan, yeah. Right. But again, I wasn't, I'm not cut out for that kind of public sphere, you okay. know. And so one of the things that in the end that I love about what I do now, and again, I found it accidentally, is it pushes me out into the world on the mm-hmm. one hand. But on the other hand, I sp- also spend all this time by myself. Right, right. You know, right. As a writer must. Yeah. And and it's a mixed bag, but but there's something that I really enjoy about that, that solitude, sort mm. of working through things. Um, yeah, I wasn't cut out. I When I was in Michigan for a while, when I was free, Freelancing, I had to take all these odd jobs, and for a while, one job I took was I worked as a campaign manager for a friend who was running for county commissioner, and I hated the job. <laughs> I hated it. He won, but I hated the job. You realize, uh, you know, well, these are things you learn about yeah, yourself in your twenties. Yeah, you right? know, you had to call people, ask them to vote for him, or ask for money, and I just wasn't. It just I wasn't cut thing. out for it. Yeah, you uh, ended up in Lansing, Michigan. Mm-hmm. How did you end up there? I was when I graduated from college. Uh, I was uh, come somewhat uh, without a compass. I ended up working on a cattle ranch 
for a year out <laughs> a in Oregon. A cattle ranch. Yeah. Wow. And then after we rounded up the cattle, I saw an ad in Mother Jones magazine okay. uh, for an associate editor at a small alternative news weekly in Lansing, Michigan. And okay. I applied. They flew me out and they hired me $112 a week, which wasn't a lot <laughs> back then. Um, and uh, and again, it was really, you know, I realized when I, I, within a month or two, this is what I wanted to do. I didn't get along. It's the only place where I didn't get along with the editor there. Mm. And so I left or got fired, depending who you mm. ask, uh, and ended up staying in Michigan for four and a half years. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, what gave you the idea to even apply for this job you were uh, you, I was just I was looking for work. Yeah. I was just you know okay. it's not it wasn't I didn't have I don't didn't have my sights set on being a journalist I okay. didn't, or being a writer. I was looking for I needed work. I didn't want to go back to New York. Um, do you think it had any? I mean, subconsciously perhaps had something to do with your father being a oh, famous I, I'm, journalist. Oh, I'm <laughs> sure if we dug deep, that uh-huh. there's no question that uh, he uh, w- w- he wore off on me in in the best of ways. Yeah. Um, he and I had a really kind of rough relationship mm. back then. So, um, but there's no question, and which we became really close in his. Uh, as I got older and he got older. But, yeah, there's no question that uh, that wore off on me in, in ways that I I don't think I was aware of at the time. What was the, what was it like? I mean, you discussed that or you mentioned that he, uh, you had a rough relationship with him at that time right. or when you were growing up. Yeah. What was the, I guess many of us do, but what was, was it? Ten- um, you know, my dad, um, uh, he was a very kind of closed person. He, uh, when I was younger, he drank a lot. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so... But it, things got a lot better. I mean, he yeah. got better. I think I, you know, eased up some. And we, we got really close. I mean, close enough that at some point I was showing him drafts of stories and asking for his advice. And, uh, um, I mean, I came to really admire him. Well, he was a World War II vet. He was. Had a, a traumatic experience. Right. And that was the other thing, I'm sure. You know, he, he was um, in the 19, towards the end of the war, was in France along the German border and was in a platoon and he was a diamond shaped platoon and he was at the rear and they went up over a a ridge and when they got over the ridge they got ambushed and my dad was the only survivor and he had to play dead for the entire day Wow! Um, and so he he basically went crazy afterwards Mm. as you can imagine and he never ever spoke about it and it's interesting so when he was in his 60s and he revisited that experience, ended up going back and finding some of the men he served with, um, not, obviously not in that platoon, and ended up writing a short memoir, this beautiful, searing mm. memoir about war um, and about the toll it took on him called Before Their Time. Um, and I have no doubt that that played a role in, in who he was. Mm. Was that good for him to... To have written this book and finally get this kind of oh, off his chest, I and, think so. I mean, yeah. I don't, you know, again, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of don't want to be a kind of play a therapist, but right. there's no question about it that yeah. it had to have been helpful for him to be able to put pen to paper and tell his story. I mean, it's one of the things that stories do is they, you know, ultimately, you know, make us feel less alone. There's this great line at the end of um, Tim O'Brien's "The Things They Carried." I uh, love that book. Oh, is that yeah. uh, it's such a beautiful book? And towards the end of it, he writes, "You know, this much I know to be true: stories can save us." And yeah. I think he was speaking as much to his readers as he was to himself. Mm, interesting. Wow. You moved to Lansing in the seventies, or yeah, uh, uh, 70, 79. Okay, and worked on this 
this alternative weekly right. in Lansing, but then you ended up uh, working with Michael Moore, I take it. Yeah, so I, I spent eight months at this alternative newspaper, and it was at this you know, really profound time in Michigan and in the country, the beginning of the deindustrialization yes. of America. Right. And the auto industry was just reeling. Um, uh, and so I went and spent some time in Flint because Flint, of course, was a home to General Motors and also the birthplace of the United Auto Workers. Right. And, uh, and it was a place that was really suffering. And Michael was running this uh, this small newspaper, The Flint Voice. Mm-hmm. And so I went up there and you know, would crash at Michael's place and work on the paper for a week and write stories. Um, it was a, um, I mean, it was a really, really troubling time for uh, people in the heartland. Yes. Um, and I ended up actually um, doing learning radio because mm. NPR was so desperate to have somebody in Michigan to okay. report about this. They taught me radio over the telephone. <laughs> uh, so you were kind of a, I was kind of a loose correspondent yeah. for issues related to all the layoffs and the and the fact that jobs are moving to Mexico and all the this right. whole phenomena yeah. that uh, later was the subject of Michael's first film. Right, right. Then, they were asking for right, all the, right. you know the GM was asking for all these givebacks from its workers right. and. Uh, um, uh, it was an amazing time. I spent a lot of time in the union halls there. In mm-hmm. fact, I taught um, mm-hmm. at some of the union halls uh, there. Yeah, and then Michael did his first film, Roger and Me, which yeah. was about that very era. Is this on? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? We're rolling. Hi, I'm Michael Moore. In my hometown of Flint, Michigan, General Motors closed the factories and put 30,000 people out of work. To raise their spirits, I made this movie. Fire And went off to find GM chairman Roger Smith to get some answers. Which was really, I thought, was a turning point, not only in our understanding in some ways of these issues. Boy, was he hard to get to. Because he reached a much broader audience through his, you know, his, his talents, his humor. But also uh, a documentary that I think was kind of groundbreaking, too. That, you know, it was a very unusual uh, thing. His first film, he never made a film before. Right, right. Did, what, did it was we... the antithesis of a Fred Wiseman film. Yeah, it was exactly. also a friend. But yeah, he, yeah, was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was where, you know, you had the filmmaker front and center. And, yeah. uh, and Michael was, as he is in all of his films, was this kind of central character. And it was the beauty of that film is that uh, and michael has this really um especially back then has had this really kind of disarming quality yes about him. really really smart um and incisive and uh, and i thought this notion of trying to track down the president of general motors mm-hmm. is this kind of brilliant notion. it's a great device yeah. yeah what was it like to work for you to work with him on that on the flint voice i, I mean i loved working with michael mike you know again we kind of complimented each other you uh-huh. know i was a much more sort of deliberate uh um uh immersive reporter and michael had this irreverence about him mm-hmm. and was kind of front and center not only in his films but also in his stories and so it was it, you know it was it was exciting i mean he uh what i loved about him as he was unafraid, mm-hmm. um, which is what you need to be as a journalist. Courage. Yeah. Yeah. 
Did what did you did you learn anything that you can think of from that experience of working with him? Or well, I mean, I think you know, one this sense of uh, of being undaunted and unafraid. You know, yeah. Michael was just he he really uh, lived by his convictions, and the other part of it is just to recognize you know that there are more more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to tell a story, and so right. Michael. There's the way that Michael does it and the way that I do it, and neither one is right or wrong or better or worse than the other. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I, I just, I really, I think more than anything, it's just sort of, just the sort of power of your, con- just stand by the power of your convictions. I mean, he was, re- he was really unafraid, um, and he was really young at the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then you ended up. Um, did you go to the Wall Street Journal from there, or how did that? Well, how did you know, that all come yeah. to be? So you know, I desperately wanted to work at a daily newspaper because I felt like I needed to work with some experienced reporters and editors, mm-hmm. and I needed a job. And, uh, <laughs> There's uh, always that. Yeah, and I wanted really what I wanted to do is work in Detroit at the Free Press or the News, which oh, yeah. were these really vital, robust papers at the time. I remember those papers in those days. I that was their heyday. Yeah. The oh, they was amazing places. I but I couldn't get anybody to hire me because. The, it was this catch-22 because I didn't have any daily newspaper experience. Right. I applied there, the Nashville, Tennessee, and all these papers. And so I then decided I just wanted to be in a bigger place. And I moved to Chicago with the intention of continuing to freelance. NPR had a bureau here, so I right. spent a year there at the bureau. And uh, and the last place I applied to was the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were willing to take a gamble. Really? So you were in <laughs> Chicago, and got, but stayed in Chicago, but got a job a full-time gig with the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I was hired to cover. I thought I'd be there for maybe two or three years. I was hired to cover organized labor um, Uh nationally and then to cover these industrial, these Midwest businesses like John Deere and Caterpillar. I I quickly learned that, one, I wasn't very good at business reporting (laughs) and didn't like it very much. And so I, you know, slowly kind of carved out a niche at the paper writing about social issues Mm -hmm. and... Uh, and it was a, it was actually I think as good a job as anybody could find in journalism. I mm. wrote for the front page. I wrote you know I could disappear for two months, at, mm. two or three months at a time. Nobody asked any questions, and I'd come back and write a story. And you know there it would be on the front page, and it was this incredible audience to have because it, I was writing for people who weren't paying any attention to these issues. And so I was writing about you know the projects in this in Chicago I spent time writing about the farm crisis uh, was still writing about organized labor around the country um, it was and they gave you leeway to oh, they were, do it, whatever you it was like it was a, it was an amazing place to work and it was also you know it was a time at the paper I mean all these people who went on to have these amazing careers of writing books you know Tony Horowitz who sadly just passed away his wife Geraldine Brooks Jim Stewart mm-hmm. Brian Burrow Eric Larson mm-hmm. you know it was the place was just hopping mm. And you don't think of the Wall Street Journal as covering social issues right. primarily. Well, that's, so what I, that's what I, I loved was about it. I surprised that, yeah. you know, when, yeah. I, yeah. when I first yeah. knew about you, I was like, he used to work for the Wall Street yeah. Journal. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Well, there was a strong separation of church and state. So, the you know, the editorial pages were and probably still are to the right of Attila the Hun. But they really, you know, they really <laughs> trusted their reporters. And, I, you know, again, that I would go out into the world and, and find stories, and I, I never ran into any interference. That's that amazing. Yeah. That's, that's great. And so I assume somewhere along the way you started to think about a book or, I mean, you had, you had done so many stories on these kind of issues, right. urban uh, poverty, uh, the issues right. of race and vi- gun violence and these kind of gang warfare, et cetera, the projects in Chicago. And so how did the... 
eventually right. the book come right. to be there are no children right. here well i knew that i, I you know I, I realized especially when i was at the journal how much i love telling stories and in fact i got to know studs turkle earlier studs on turkle, yeah, right. uh, early on and studs had uh, recommended me to his publisher oh. uh, andre schifrin at pantheon oh, yeah. and so i remember when i first hired when i hired on at the journal i went out to visit with andre and Com- over about six cups of coffee, committed to writing a book about uh, an industrial town in the Midwest. They had uh-huh. a series of books about villages um, oh, okay. that had been written. And in fact, that was Studs' Division Street was actually kind of a part of that. Oh, it was part of that. Yeah, okay. and um, uh, and so I committed to it. And then when I came back and realized there was no way I could do that and have a full-time job, which I just had started. Uh, so that was my first sort of inclination that ultimately I'd love to sort of write books. Um, and then, um, you know, I'd done a story about um, uh, Lafayette, one of the boys in There Are No Children right. Here. And a summer the the in his two life. brothers. Right, in There right. Are No Children Here. And it was a summer in his life. I don't think I've ever gotten any kind of this, the kind of response I got to that book. I mean, I got hundreds of letters, you know, it was before email. And yeah. uh, the New York Times ran editorials. And, um, and there was all this interest in my writing a book and I just felt like I had said everything I needed to say and then I got a call from an agent David Black who's my agent to this day who actually convinced me that there was something more here and I think one of the things I came to realize about book writing um, and it's also it's one of the things I love about it is also one of the things that makes me tentative about it as well is that you know it's got a shelf life and so yeah. you want to be sure that what you're writing will still feel as resonant 10 years from now as it does today so it was that while I was at the journal that I actually took a leave of absence to write their own children here. So you were saying you had been writing articles in, in about these issues, but then at some point decided um, to, to, to take on the book, right. urged by your, your soon-to-be agent right. to, to write a book. Tell us very briefly what that book is about for sure. those people that haven't read, and they should read it, but right. if they haven't. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, for me, ultimately, well, I walked into Henry Horner, which was a public housing project not too far from here. That's right. And, uh, um, you know, it was a mile and a half from my office, which was then downtown, and I felt this incredibly deep sense of shame. Like, how is it I could not know? I mean, I thought I was pretty savvy about the poverty in our cities. And I had never, I mean, just in my short time there, just had never seen or experienced, in, experienced anything like it. And mm-hmm. I thought, how is it in the most wealthiest country people are living like this? And then that shame turned to anger. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so what I did is I ended up chronicling the two years in the lives of two young brothers, Lafayette and Farrow right. Rivers. They were 12 and 9 years old when I first How did you them. meet them, or how did you decide to focus Well, I, I met Lafayette, well, uh, you know, when I worked on this Wall Street Journal piece. Right. Um, but I had lost touch with him. And then I went and spent time at the Boys Club. It was now the Boys and Girls Club there and uh, and ran into Lafayette again and met his brother Pharaoh and one of the things I loved about the two of them is that they <clears throat> I mean they were both really engaging and thoughtful and yet incredible and loved each other and yet mm. incredibly different mm. um, and so I ended up spending two years with them writing about these two young boys growing up in the so project you, you were there in a sense, in research mode for two years. Yeah, I was or, there almost every day for, wow. yeah, for a year and a That's half. That's an yeah. amazing commitment. Yeah. yeah. And so I assume people just sort of got used to you being there, right? Uh, they did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people uh, didn't want to speak to me. I remember there was, yeah. I always remember after the book came out, we were on Oprah and 
it was my claim to fame in the neighborhood. And there was a woman <laughs> on the third floor there when I was back visiting, and she looked out her window and wagged her finger and said, "Now I know what you were doing all this time." But when I got out, when I began hanging out at the boys' club, the head of the boys' club, Major Adams, um, would, took me around, and introduced me to a lot of the adults in the neighborhood. And one of the things he did, unbeknownst to me, was mm-hmm. he was introducing me to some of the gang leaders oh, and letting them know for safety reasons. Yeah, just yeah. letting them know who I yeah. was and what I was doing. I mean, I was the yeah. only outside of the police. I was the only white person there, and so. So people kind of watched out for me. I mm-hmm. mean, people always ask, did I feel unsafe? And I got to say, in the, all my time there, I never, I mean, there, you know, you, there would be gunfire and you'd mm-hmm. sort of, but back then it was, because it was so much more deliberate, it was over the drug trade, you usually mm-hmm. got fair warning that it was right. going to happen. Uh, it wasn't as random as right. it seems now. But I, I never know. had anything directed at me yeah. in all my time yeah. there. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So you didn't feel threatened being in that in that uh, no, I mean, I project? No, I mean, yeah, and I was careful. You know, the other the you crossed over um, Damon Avenue, this the boulevard that sort of intersected the projects east and west, and right. and it was run by a different gang, and so I wouldn't go over into mm. that part of the projects mm-hmm. unless I had an escort. Um, and what were you trying to do? You 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 decided to focus on these two brothers, and what was your goal what was your aim uh using them as a microcosm or what was your what was your thinking i just wanted to tell the story of what of this part of the sliver of america that had been completely ignored and neglected i mean people who were growing up in this profound poverty in our country and i think there's this myth out there that people are in the position they are because of choices they've made or Mm -hmm. who they are and i wanted to try to in some ways pop that myth and so the book you know it it follows these two boys it talks about the history of the neighborhood the kind of deliberate effort to sort of keep all these very poor people in a very constrained neighborhood Mm -hmm. there were a number of them in the city uh the history of public housing about how fraught that was about how it really served as a kind of bulwark to segregation in the city Mm um and it was and it was just really an effort to sort of understand through the eyes of these two boys about all the pressures and forces bearing down on them of which they had no responsibility for and and the title i guess in some way sums it up i mean they're they're because of the violence and the poverty that they're enmeshed in that they aren't really children in a way that right it was a line when i asked them their mother um whether um it would be okay for me to do the book and to spend time with her family and her children, her response, she kind of got it right away. She understood. I mean, the conditions there were just, were just horrific and people needed to know. And she said to me, I told her I wanted to write specifically about children. And she said to me, but there are no children here. Mm. Um, and of course, the irony, of course, is that they are, in fact, kids. Right, um, of course. But they're not, <laughs> not given the sort of space in the room to have the kind of childhoods that most of us right. experience. Right. And I love the book and also your new book because it's not doesn't come off as preachy or don't have an agenda. You're not trying to change policy. You're telling stories uh, with great empathy, I think, and great descriptive powers that um, allow us into this world, as you described earlier, that we wouldn't normally be in. And uh, I think it's, to me, it's a deeper experience to be able to be in that world, as you describe, in the storytelling approach, as opposed to... Other books I've read, which are some are very important books, right. but they're very prescriptive. Right. Uh, right. So I really admire. Uh, right. That. Well, thanks. And I, the thing I always say about telling stories is, you know, you tell stories not to answer questions, but to ask them. Right. And, uh, 
Very important point. Yeah. And Farrell and Lafayette, so they um, stayed with you. One of the didn't you adopt one of the? I didn't kids? adopt him, and I. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I want to. I'll, I'll talk about it as much as I talked about it in American Summer. But he came to live with us for six years okay. um, during from the age of twelve to eighteen. Um, and it was, uh, it, we, you know, he was, he was a kid who absolutely loved school. Mm-hmm. And after the book came out, he was having trouble, not unrelated to the book, was having, tr- I had gotten him in, helped get him into a college prep school in the West Side Providence, St. Mel. And, oh, yeah. And the he was having school. Yeah. I mean, a terrific place. And yeah. he was having trouble concentrating, doing uh. his homework. And I was living up on the North Side and I was single at the time. And he right. asked if he could move in with me for a week or two to just, uh-huh. You know, and a week we, or two became a couple of years. Became we became six years. Six years. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah, I remember in the in the new book, yeah. there's a little intro right. about discussing that, um, yeah. and it's important, I think, as you've said in other interviews, to, to you've developed relationships with these people, so you've stayed in touch with them. I assume. Right. No, fair enough. Yet, I mean, I just you know, I just talked to them yesterday. I'm, yeah. You know, they're now in their forties. Are uh, they really? Yeah. Yeah. So I know. I know. Time, wow. I know. Time That's was crazy. Um, and so, yeah, they've become very much a part of my life. And it's yeah. one of the things I love about my work is a lot of the people, not everybody, but a yeah. lot of the people I meet while I'm reporting, uh, you know, become a part of my life and my family's life. And I feel so, my life is so much richer and fuller. Yeah, for that. it enriches your life, yeah. I think. Yeah. Obviously, that book, There Are No Children Here, became a phenomena, right. really. It was a landmark book. Um, and it really became a bestseller, and it was eventually turned into a movie by Oprah Winfrey, and uh, it won a bunch of awards, and I imagine it must have changed your life. What was it like to suddenly have this kind of uh, you know, phenomena that you yeah. had created? Yeah, I was probably too young to enjoy it at the yeah. time, but um, you know, it was a heady experience. I mean, I, listen, I had never written a book before, so I didn't right. know what to expect, That's right. and, um, and I felt like I had written the book I wanted to write, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not sure that my publisher or I expect, had great expectations, but it, as you say, the book sort of took off in ways I hadn't imagined. And you know, I mean, it, it, one of the things I l- love about the book is I still I mean I still hear from readers. in fact I just got emails this morning from readers of there are no children here all these many years later yeah That's I mean amazing. students in a high school you know it's used yeah. a lot in high schools and colleges and uh, and the two things that I've loved I mean one which I had hoped for is I get these letters like I got from these kids at a at, from Muskegon in Michigan this morning about how it really got them thinking about the world about this country differently you know yeah. it sort of made them realize that um in some ways how privileged their lives are mm-hmm. and also what other people are up against but the other part that i didn't expect is i hear from people too who just say thank you for telling my story you uh-huh. know, people who grew up in similar communities or right. circumstances and um and sort of see some of themselves in lafayette Nobody had ever told their story before yeah. in some ways. Yeah. So right. it's been, I mean, it's been incredibly rewarding. And just on a practical note, one of the things it did is it made it easier for me to continue writing what I wanted to write about. Right. It yeah. was kind of uh, liberating in that yeah. way, too. Yeah. That's great. You uh, I talk very briefly, but you, your second book was uh, The Other Side of the River, and it's uh, set in the intersection of St. Joe, St. Joseph, Michigan, and South Haven. Uh, and Benton Harbor. Benton Harbor, right. excuse me, Benton Harbor and St. Joseph. And uh, i from Michigan, as you know, so I'm well aware I've been to those towns, both those towns. There's a river, the St. Joe River, that runs between them. Right. And this is a case where a, a, a young African-American boy was 
uh, found mm-hmm. drowned in the river. And uh, it's quite an amazing tale. It's kind of a detective story, but also, uh, of course, a story about race. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That I mean, it, it came very much out of their own children here because I realized that <clears throat> after the book came out and I would go around the country talking about the book, that one of the things the book didn't do in a really forthright way is talk about race. Right. And so I wanted to, fi- and, and at the time, I think things are different today. The thing that for me was most notable about the conversation around race in this country was its absence. There was just really no conversation. Right. And so as a storyteller, man, that's hard to do is to write about something that just doesn't exist. Right. And, and so <clears throat> it was right after the um, the the um, Rodney King verdict had been rendered. So around 92 then, basically. 92, 93, yeah, right. And yeah. the verdict had been rendered, and L.A. went up that's in right. flames. Ended early Sunday morning with the motorist, a black male, being brutally beaten and kicked by Los Angeles police officers. A beating that continued, even as the man appeared to offer no resistance. All of a sudden, police brutality had a human face, and it was being battered by Los Angeles cops on a neighborhood street in the San Fernando Valley. The motorist was apparently shot by a taser gun, which is used to electrically shock a suspect into submission. But police also stomped on the man's head and repeatedly kicked him before both his wrists and ankles were bound. And I was at the Wall Street Journal at the time, and they uh-huh. wanted me to go to Los Angeles. Oh, I don't like being that. yeah, and I don't like being in the center of the storm. I don't like the competition and I right. said, let me see if I can find a story that would help us reflect on what's going on out uh, there. And I knew Benton Harbor and St. Joe from my time in Michigan. Right. Um, and you know, for me it's kind of a metaphor for this country. You've got yeah. these two small towns, one black, one white, one desperately poor, one very prosperous, separated by this river, you know, and again if it's not a river, it's railroad tracks or a boulevard. Dan and, Ryan Expressway. Right, right. Or Austin <laughs> Avenue where <laughs> That's I live. Right. Yeah. And so I uh, I went up there and I went to the library and the librarian asked me what I was doing and I told her and she began to tell me the story of this young boy, Eric McGinnis, who a year earlier had been, uh, uh, grew up in Benton Harbor, lived in Benton Harbor, was in St. Joe, which was kind of unusual for the night. He mm-hmm. had some white friends and allegedly had broken into a car and got caught and was chased and then three days later his body was found floating in the river and what was clear to me is that virtually everybody in Benton Harbor in the black community was convinced that Eric had died as a result of foul play Mm -hmm. because he had been dating a white girl which in fact he had and Uh everybody in St. Joe the white town was convinced that Eric had died an accidental death that he had tried to swim the river to get home is kind of Rashomon of race. You know, just right. like Rodney King, when you looked at that videotape, I don't know if you remember, but yes. depending on sort of where your you, your right. perspective, your personal and collective history, mm-hmm. you came to that videotape with mm-hmm. very different mm-hmm. conclusions. So it was a, in a way, it was yeah. a perfect metaphor right. for uh, right. the racial divide in this country. Right. So yeah. that's why I ended up there. Is yeah. For me, it was right. It was this perfect metaphor for what we were reckoning with um and of course the two towns were forced to talk about race because of this crisis at hand which is was so much the case back then and then of course while i was writing the book we had the oj simpson trial that's right that's right and things have in some ways have changed quite a bit i mean now we are I do believe we are ha- finally having a dialogue about race. It's not always the most productive right. dialogue, but we are at least uh, doing that, which, as you said, in those days was not as, right. as probably. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah. we're having a dialogue about it now, right. but I think it's uh, it's certainly out in the open. Yeah, in a way that maybe dialogue been, is right? not yeah. the right yeah. word. I wish we were having a dialogue. I wish we were, yeah. yes. So you also uh, then, many years later, uh, got involved with your friend Steve James on a, on a documentary 
called the interrupters. Well, it was a violent night in Chicago. Nine people were shot in just five hours. One person died. Gregory Robinson is the 28th Chicago public school student killed this school year. I had written a story for the New York Times Magazine about this organization, Ceasefire, and uh, and I was really um, drawn not so much to the organization itself, but to the, some of the people who work there, mm. these men and women who were in their 40s, 50s, some of them in their 30s. The interrupters. Right, all formerly right. of the street, who for right. one reason or another had the second act in life and were right. trying to undo some of the damage that they had helped cause when they were younger. Um, and I was telling Steve after the story came out, I said, why don't you come with me to one of these? They would meet every Wednesday. Mm. And why don't you come to one of these meetings? You just look in their faces and you can see the kind of history there, the, the, the sort of the pain that they've experienced. Um, and, um, and we ended up... Um, you know, following three of the interrupters over the course of 14 months. I mean, the, the fine line we walked with this film is that we really didn't see it as a film about ceasefire per se, but really sort of we're using these three individuals to sort of be our eyes and ears in these communities to help us kind of understand and uh, what was taking place and understand the violence. Um, and it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, we ended up with three remarkable, remarkable people. On the streets of Chicago. Youth violence in Chicago has gotten world attention. We got over 500 years of prison time at this table. That's a lot of wisdom. Ex gang members recruited to stop the violence. The violence interrupters have one goal in mind save the life. Kobe. How can you help me? Right now, Kobe has big-time credibility with the gang members out there. Eddie. Half of my life, I was in prison. That's why I do what I do now. You do what's up? Amina. Amina Matthews' father was one of the biggest gang leaders in the history of Chicago. She gets in where a lot of guys can't get in. So he I The life that I lived, being in shootouts, looking at the devil face to face. And I look at my, my sisters and my brothers today you know, that was once me. A window into a world that few of us would ever right. uh, meet. Right. Yeah. Uh, was there a danger? Did you ever feel a sense of danger no, going you know, out there? I, no, the answer is no, because we were, this is one of the beauties of, of working on that particular film, is we had these three guides, Kobe, mm -hmm. Eddie, and Amina, mm -hmm. who were watching our back all the time. Okay. And they had so much respect in the neighborhoods where they were. Um, I mean, Kobe used to introduce us as, he said, this is my film crew. That was, that, uh, you know. <laughs> my personal uh, film yeah, crew. It was, Doesn't uh, everybody yeah, have yeah. one? I always wanted to be like my dad. You know, he is my role model because he used to always dress slick, wear big hats and suits and, you know, all that. And I just, you know, wanted to be like him. I was 11 years old when my father got killed. He got beat with some baseball bats. That just messed me up. I used to be out there in the streets all through the night. I used to be in jails, fighting, kicking off rides, and doing all crazy stuff. Just game banging. 
Oh, what up, boy? Man, come on, let me, man. What's up? Ricardo Kobe Williams. Uh, he's a younger interrupter, which is a good thing. But once he came on board to cease fire, he began to really turn the heat on. Kobe knows how to get in. He talks the language, and he knows what to say, when to say it. Crazy, man. You two guys, man, y'all been around here on a lot of bullshit, yeah. both of y'all. Robbing people, breaking the windows. Breaking out, look at them. And we also made a, uh, you know, we wanted as much access as we could get. So we made an arrangement with the three of them that, you know, in the end, we would show them a rough cut, um, not for obviously retaining editorial, but partly so that we wouldn't, so there'd be no moments that might compromise them or anybody else. And in fact, there was a scene that we ended up uh, removing from the film because of concerns about... Uh, the safety of one of the people in the in the scene, right? Um, but yeah, it was a really. I mean, it was a wonderful experience. I loved working with Steve, and uh, we also had had another a co-producer on Zach Piper, yeah. and uh, I just uh, you know it was the three of us. It was, it was a great really, team. It was a really bare small, bones team. Right? It was, right. It was a really yeah. small crew. There were never more than three of us, often just two. Um, Steve told me that he kept the camera right by his door. Yeah, right, right. We, and yeah. it just, as you said, as a moment's notice, he would right. have to fly out to the west side and yeah, we would film. we'd be on the phone at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You know, just got a call from Kobe. What do yeah. you think? Should we go out? Wow. And we'd have to make these. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so, that's why yeah. the film is such a incredible. Yeah. One of the reasons it's so incredible yeah. is you're always there, right. at these yeah. moments. And it was inspiring. I mean, and plus for me, I mean, I've done some film before. Mm-hmm. Um, one, it was a real treat to work with somebody of Steve's immense talent. Yes. And I really learned a lot. And there was something about the collaborative experience that I just mm-hmm. really enjoyed because I spent so much time working by myself. That's right. Uh, what uh, was that like for you to, to collaborate with somebody and to work in a different medium? Yeah. What's, what's, what are, what's different about and what's the same? Right. Well, I mean, the thing about film, of course, I mean, as you well know, is that so much of it, you've got to be there in the moment. Yes. Um, and it's really, I mean, it's where in some ways print Trump's film is I can go back and on the page and recreate moments with the same cinematic quality as I could if I were the present for it. But with film, you really got to be there. That's so right. we were, you know, on call 24 hours a day. We, you know, would get calls late at night and would have to make some quick decisions about whether to go out. Um, and um, and you sort of have to be operating for film to work. You got to be operating on all cylinders. You yeah. know, you've got to um, and. Uh, and so for me, the, the, and again, I'd done some f- movie, I'd done some documentary work before. It wasn't mm-hmm. my first experience. I think with this, one of the things that I realized, you know, we would go into the edit room and I would go in there, uh, having just been in there the day before, two days earlier, and I had trouble holding it all in my head. I'd go down, <laughs> we'd be watching a scene, and I had to be kind of reminded of what preceded it and uh-huh. what followed. But like if I'm working on a book, it's like all in my head. Oh, I mean, it should be the way I'm wired. Yeah, um, yeah. Or, uh, um, and so, um, and, and yet Steve could go down there and he, you know, he, we would edit in his basement and, um, and he, he had it all clearly in his head. He, knew he was wired differently from yeah. you. He could, he yeah. could figure out what yeah. the scenes yeah. were proceeding in. Right. And there's something that one of the things that one of the beauties about film is it's so accessible. Yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, the film, uh, reached a huge audience, yeah. uh, as I recall, won a lot of awards mm-hmm. and yeah. really had a big, I think a big impact yeah. on people. Again, you were also a correspondent and one of the producers of this 
really great uh, series on This American Life about Harper right. High School in Chicago. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that. That was an incredible series uh, that you did with, I believe, with Linda Lutton and Ben Calhoun. And Ben Calhoun. Right. Yeah. Talk about that. Sure. Uh, that yeah. Project. So I've, you know, I've been doing. I mean, I've known Ira for years, and so I've been doing stuff for the show. From well, let's the mention that Ira Glass is the uh, is the founder, founder of, right. of This American Life. Right. So, I, and so I've been doing stuff for them from the very beginning. I love. I mean, Ira has changed the landscape for storytelling, yeah. and um, and that show. I love doing stories for that show. I mean, it's got some of the smartest, most incisive producers. Um, I had gotten a call from Julie Snyder, who was uh, um, basically the managing editor for the show, and she now was a co-founder of Serial. Um, oh, okay. But Julie, um, they were trying to figure out whether there was a, we had a really, was a really difficult uh, spring here in the city, and we mm-hmm. had a really bad Memorial Day, and she was trying to figure out whether there might be a, a story to do around Memorial Day weekend and and was asking for advice and I was talking to her about it. I just said I didn't think that was necessarily a great idea because my concern was is that it because it was so recent it would be really hard to get people to talk to us. Um, and then I heard this piece by Linda Lutton, mm-hmm. a reporter at WBZ, an education reporter, and it was a really kind of small story, mm-hmm. but really um, uh, um, really compelling and in some ways really profound. But she was at a funeral for a student at Harper High, Shikaki Asfi, and she was with the principal, Leonetta Sanders. And they had lost so many kids the year before that Miss Sanders had started to keep a, a notebook um, of all the kids both current and former students. It was that been, many who, well, kids. They had wow. 27 current and former students who had been shot wow. that year, uh, seven of them fatally. And so she had this notebook. And this is a woman who's at Harper High She School. was the principal. Okay. And so um, I sent the piece to Julie, and I called Linda, and I just wondered whether, given that the school year was about to begin, whether it made sense to kind of plant ourselves in this school and try to sort of understand how this institution tries to regain its footing after right. this horrible year. And so Linda and myself and Ben went out there on that first day um, and not sure how we were going to pull this all together. In the five months I spent at Harper, nearly every time I visited the school's social work office, which was often, Thomas, a junior, would be there too, during classes, passing periods, lunch, whenever. So much that one day I asked him, hey, every time I come here, you're here. Why do you hang out here so much? Nah, I ain't going to give you no answer for that. Every time I come, you come in there for real. No, every time, every time I come, you're here. <laughs> I just need, I just, sometimes I just need to talk to somebody. That's why I come in here. Thomas has witnessed an incredible amount of violence. Last June, he was standing on the porch of an abandoned building talking with another Harper student, Shikaki Aspie, when she was shot and killed. This, though, wasn't the first murder Thomas had witnessed. Back in 2006, he was at a birthday party for 10-year-old girl Saritha White, nicknamed Nugget, when someone shot through the front window. Thomas says he remembers being let out of the house by the police and seeing Nugget laying on the floor with what appeared to be her brains next to her. Nugget's killing happened when Thomas was 10. Shikaki's murder was when Thomas was 17. And as his social worker, Anita Stewart, tells it, there have been many, many in between. Last summer, he did witness, you know, one of the kids in the neighborhood got shot in the face. He witnessed that. 
Then it was a student here that got shot in the leg. He was a witness to that. I was very fortunate. I met these two social workers who uh-huh. I just fell in love with, and uh, and I just disappeared. I embedded with them, um, and that was my place in the school. Good morning, Tom. And I, I can't understand why you didn't get here on time this morning. You know that just your sister says that she wakes you up every morning. I did. Hit, my mama just brought okay. me here. Lower your voice. I'm right here. It's so good to see you this morning. Why you just come, Tom? Out. Thomas and Anita have an interesting relationship. He's pretty combative, kind of churlish. At times, it almost seems like he doesn't even like Anita very much. But the truth is, they're incredibly close. I don't think Thomas opens up much to many people, but he does with Anita. At the end of October, on the first floor, the school put up a memorial display for Shikaki, the girl Thomas was standing next to when she was killed. Anita had worked with Shikaki for two years, and she's still struggling with her own grief over her death. And partly, it's this shared grief that draws Anita and Thomas together. Like Thomas, Anita hasn't been able to bring herself to look at the memorial. So why haven't you gone up there to look at it? If I think about it, I'll, I'll do something. You'll do something like what? Try to hurt somebody. Try to hurt somebody, he says. Trying to hurt someone or wanting to hurt someone, these are things Thomas has said a lot. One time when I asked him where he thought he might be in 10 years, he said, might be in jail because I think I'm going to hurt someone. Mostly it felt like tough talk, like teenage bravado. But on this day, when talking about Shikaki, it started to become clear that this kind of talk, talk about hurting someone, isn't just tough guy bragging. I began to realize that Thomas was trying the best he could, to be honest, about some feelings he has, feelings that scare him. And you were there for the whole school year? We were there for six months. Six months, uh, yeah. okay. And, uh, you know, not every day. We were yeah. there, you know, at the beginning more right. often than we were towards the end. Um, but, but, I mean, uh, it has a, because of the length of it, right. it has this amazing depth right. of understanding of um, all the nuances right. of that school. Instead of just parachuting in, right. you know, you were there, kind of embedded, as you said. We heard one of the school's two social workers, Anita Stewart, earlier this hour. Crystal Smith is the other one. Crystal is relentlessly bright, positive, cheerful, peppy, like aggressively so. Here's how early in the year she says goodbye to a kid in her office who is leaving for class. Hello, you are a person, okay? You are valuable and you matter. Okay, go. By late November this year, though, things have kind of changed. Alex explains how. It's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving break, and I run into Crystal Smith, who's just coming into work. She collapses into her chair. Crystal tells me that last night she went to the ER. She was worried she was having a stroke, but the doctor told her it was most likely symptoms of stress. But Crystal isn't just having a bad day. Work has been wearing her down, and others, it seems, are having a hard time, too. It's not over, they said. Yeah, there haven't been any students killed this year, but the shooting hasn't stopped. I point out that that's how the kids must feel sometimes, and they agree. In the office, I tell Crystal that she looks tired. Yeah, I know. I don't know, maybe your book stressed me out. Crystal's been working towards a second master's degree, and in one of her classes this year, has been reading a book I wrote over 20 years ago called There Are No Children Here. 
where I follow two brothers living in the projects on Chicago's west side. For a couple of years, I followed the boys as they grappled with violence, poverty, and the gangs. And Crystal wonders if reading it isn't adding to her stress. (laughs) It was really interesting, though, um, to think that 20 years later, nothing has changed. That's the scarier part. You mean in, in the neighborhoods? Right. Yeah. Right. You know that the, the same cycles are being repeated over again. One of the things that's stressing Crystal out is her relationship with a junior named Devante. Earlier in the year, Crystal began meeting regularly with Devante. Last February, Devante accidentally shot and killed his 14-year-old brother. Since then, his sister has stopped talking to him, and things have been strained with his mom. I started getting along with Miss Smith like during sophomore year or something like that. And she started loving me. I think she's really fond of you. She worries about you. Mm-hmm, all the time. Do you like it that she worries about you? Yeah, I like the, for a person that cares for, for me and stuff. I started to ask Devante a bit about his brother and about the accident, but he told me that he didn't really want to talk about it. I be wanting to give up on my life sometimes. Is that right, Devante? Why? Uh, I don't like my life no more. I hate myself. I lost him. And, like, how could I lose him when, you know, I'm reaching my hand out, grab back? A few days later, Crystal calls Devante. She then runs through what for them has by now become a familiar exercise. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Crystal asks. The good Devante, he replies. Then Crystal reminds him, don't forget he's in there. And so that was really, it was very hard for me. And I said, okay, son, I love you and take care of yourself. He said, I love you too, mine. I'll go. That's that. It was both difficult and it was also a real treat. Alex Kotlitz. Got you out of your uh, isolation yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. booth for a while. Right, yeah. And that series uh, went on to win a Peabody Award, mm-hmm. as I recall, right. and uh, really was, uh, I think it was a very profound, and Harper, of course, is an infamous school in, in many right, ways in right. terms of the violence around it. Right, right. So, and then Michelle Obama came out to visit the school, right. and she writes about it in her book. That's right. Yeah. So you have a brand new book. Well, it's not brand new, but it's right. been out for a few months, uh, An American Summer, Love and Death in Chicago. And uh, it kind of, in a way, thematically revi- revisits some of the mater- some of the themes of your mm-hmm. first book, but also is obviously very different. Uh, how, why did you want to write this book and how, how did it come to be? Yeah. So I was grappling, you know, I, I'd done this Harper High series. I'd done The Interrupters with Steve. Mm-hmm. Um, I still kind of wrestling with the violence um, in, in our city. And again, I could have written this book in so many different places, Philadelphia, Kansas, you know, Kansas City, St. Right. Louis, New Orleans. Uh, I happen to be in Chicago and this is my home. Um, and so to try to sort of understand, I, I have long felt that we have completely underestimated the impact of the violence on both the spirit of individuals and the spirit of communities. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to write as intimate a book as I could about right. what the violence does to people and to 
community. Um, and a friend of mine, Dave Isay, who you know founded StoryCorps, uh, That's right. we were in New York and at a benefit together, and we were talking about you know what I was thinking about doing next, and I was still a little lost. I remember I got this excited call from from Dave, though every call hit from his an excited call. And he said, I've got an idea. You just need to spend one summer and uh, write about one summer. And I thought, uh-huh. well, that sounds, you know, great in part because I thought, you know, I can get the reporting done reasonably quickly. I can right. spend the summer and maybe another six months and then write. And of course that turned into six years. But, yeah. um, uh, but so I took this summer, this fairly random summer. And it was and the summer of 20, two thir- 2013, 13. Right. And, um, and I was looking, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted it to be this kind of collection of stories. So there mm-hmm. was no way to capture the impact of the violence by writing about one particular story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so different from There Are No Children Here, this is a collection of stories of numerous characters. Right. And you you revisit them throughout the right, book. Right, some of the, sto- right, some of the some stories of course through to, the summer. course through the right, whole summer, yeah. right. And I was looking for stories that, up upended what I thought I knew stories yeah. that surprised me um, and uh, what what's one story that surprised you the most well I would say there's one story that surprised me the most but there 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 are stories in the book that um, well they've a lot they've all stayed with me but there's mm. you know there's a story of Lisa Daniels uh, yes. who's uh, towards the very beginning Lisa's again this extraordinary individual and she her son uh, Darren. Darren Easterling who was 25 years old was shot and killed in a drug deal gone awry right and um, and I don't want to give the whole story away but one of the things that's kind of uh, um, remarkable about her story is she ends up forgiving the person who killed her right son. and they have and, a relationship as I recall yeah, or at they, least well, they, they had a correspondence and, yeah. when he was in prison right um, and it's a story about grief, mm-hmm. about mourning, mm-hmm. um, about moving on, mm-hmm. um, and about forgiveness. Yeah. Um, uh, Forgi- but th- forgiveness in a very extreme right, situation. Right, right. And there are other stories in the book. So hers is about forgiving someone else. And then there are these couple of stories, the story of Eddie Bocanegra and of Marcelo Sanchez, about trying to forgive yourself for mm-hmm. what you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, it's, a, it's an amazing book. Yeah. One of the things I noted about it was it's an amazing job of very quickly describing the characters, getting us right into knowing who they are. Uh, I wanted to just, if, if you don't mind, I wanted to read one quick description. Sure, yeah. There's a character named Ashara Muhammad. Oh, yeah. And uh, she's a very distinctive character, at least in my view, yeah. reading the book. Here's a description that Alex wrote about her. Ashara, who's 26 and striking, has big expressive eyes, which hide little. She rolls them when annoyed. They widen when she gets excited. She closes them when she wants to disappear. By her own admission, she's also loud. She likes to talk, to tell stories, to offer her opinion, to reflect, to ask questions. She's a turbine of energy and a rather small, petite body. And to me, it's like I can see her. And, and you do that throughout the book. Very spare in a, in a way, but just hitting the right notes of describing. So when these people are presented each time, I feel like, because I'm a filmmaker, maybe I can I can just picture these people. Yeah, yeah. It's and funny, it's really, yeah, it's really it's, interesting. It's it's funny. I I, was, I just saw Eddie Bocanegra the other day, who's one mm-hmm. of the characters in the right. book, and I'd gotten a an email from a woman in St. Louis 
who told me she was reading the book and was in the middle of Eddie's chapter, and she said, I can't read on unless you tell me that he makes it. Uh, so I wrote her back, and I said, yeah, not only does he make it, but uh, he's moving forward in uh, this kind of heroic uh-huh. fashion. So she ended up finishing the book. She contacted Eddie, and she came to Chicago to meet him to actually donate money to really? his wow. violence prevention effort. But the thing she said to Eddie, she said, you look exactly like... I thought you would look from so, the description. I, yeah, right. <laughs> so I thought it, but and it and, really and Ashara is this amazing woman. She actually, yeah. in fact, lives in Philadelphia now. She's actually working on this incredible documentary film now. Um, oh, she about is about black manhood. Oh, yeah, wow. she's. Uh, um, well, it's a it's yeah. a it's a fantastic story because she has a friend named Ari Sa- Sanders mm-hmm. who was involved in a in a kind of a bungled, terrible incident right. where a kid was killed. And uh, he obviously went to prison for a while, but it's their conversations or their emails back and forth that are fascinating because they both learn so much, not only about each other because they were childhood friends, but about themselves. I know. I know that that those letters, the correspondence between the two of them, each of them in their own way, you realize is kind of pulling back this mask in some ways right. and learning so much about themselves and about each other. Yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. loved it. It was very, yeah. it was so honest. Right. Two uh, really smart, amazing. wise yeah. and honest people. Yeah. 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 You don't see that kind of yeah. raw honesty right. that yeah. often, I don't think, but the, the book is, of course it's a difficult book to read for anybody, but it's also, I found it to be at times triumphant and oh, um, yeah. affirming, complicated, messy, yeah, right, uh, all those right, things at once. Right. It, was, it was a fascinating right. look at this, right. this issue of, of this gun violence that's racking Chicago right. and many other right. cities. Well, I love it that you saw that in there because yeah. I think it is really difficult, painful terrain. Yes, uh, but you're is. right. There is something incredibly, I mean, triumphant is a great yeah way to think about it there's something really triumphant about some of if not many of the stories in the book Uh, what they have gone through to to overcome that pain or like to be able to forgive themselves or whatever it's really amazing but i know it must have been difficult for you uh taking nothing away from their trauma which is of course devastating but just a question for you is what was it like for you to write about such a difficult subject yeah. Um, yeah. So it's always difficult for me to talk about because I feel mm. I feel a little in some ways a little sheepish because mm. it feels so small given what the people I met have been through. Right. Um, and it became clear in writing the book is that some of the people I was writing about, like a newspaper reporter, Pete Nickius and the social worker, Anita Stewart, were experiencing this kind of vicarious or, or secondary trauma, you know, mm. not because of anything they had personally witnessed but because right. of all the stories they were hearing right and when i had finished the bulk of the reporting i went through this um kind of really deep depression unlike mm. anything i've ever ex- experienced before and i wasn't kind of self-aware enough to realize what was going on but i realized in hindsight i mean i went into therapy i needed mm. to um was it 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 had so much to do with all these stories that i had um, digested over the course of the previous few years. Mm. Um, I mean, for me, the great catharsis I had, of course, is I was able to take pen to paper and tell these stories. Right, and, right. And there's something really empowering about... Um, like your father had done many years about earlier. About his To get it out on right. paper is cathartic. Yeah, yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a brave uh, book to have taken on. 
Uh, and I, again, don't mean to take anything away from the trauma that they experienced, but for you as well, it's difficult. Um, but I'm so glad you made, you wrote this book because again, it gives us an insight. All we hear, uh, all we hear about is, you know, this person was killed in a shootout or this and that. And we, we don't know right. who and, these people are. Right. And more often than not, you know, you read stories that some, it was gang related suggesting right. that, you know, the victim would kind of got their due or what goes around comes around. Or we just have these stories or headlines of numbers, like we're in a pennant race, you know, right. and we kind of forget uh, about these individuals. I want privacy 18. You know what I'm saying because I, I, I'm, a, I'm a game banger. I ain't gonna, I ain't gonna lie. I'm keeping real with you. Silas Ratcliffe and Maurice Childress are both 16. Both are associated with a gang and say they wouldn't be surprised if they were shot today. Just walking down the street, you never know. Walking down the street, you never know. It just be your time to go. Right. It, it always, you always gotta look behind, turn your back. Bullets ain't got no name, no name. They might want to kill me, and then they end up killing you, 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 and you, and not killing me. The kids are matter of fact about the things they do and what they've seen. I've seen people get shot, killed, robbed, stabbed. I've done some of that, all that. It's just crazy. According to Chicago police, the murder rate here is up 35% compared to last year. People living here say the gangs have taken over. Some say they'd like to see the National Guard come in. We need help. You know, you need help. That's all I, that's the only way I can put it. Maurice and Silas say there are no jobs and people have no idea how hard it is to survive. Also, to recognize that it doesn't go away. It's no. not, you know, you lose a loved one. It's not like a week from now you're walking around and beginning to experience all this joy again. Right. And you've right. got to, the other thing about it is unlike veterans returning from combat, you got to look over your shoulder and worry about what's going to happen next. That's right. All the time yeah. in those, in those neighborhoods. So what has been the reaction to this book uh, that you've, you've experienced? You know, some people, well, it's been really terrific. I mean, I get, you know, notes and letters. In fact, I just again just got a couple of emails this morning just about sort of getting people to, you know, that they say they now are thinking differently about mm. these communities, these neighborhoods, these people. Um, you know, it, it has upended what they thought they knew, um, which is wonderful. I mean, it is dark terrain i recognize yeah. that and i i kind of um and i sometimes hear that from people mm -hmm. um that's a painful book and uh, mm -hmm. people tell me they cry a lot mm -hmm. but but again it's it's funny because i feel there is something incredibly triumphant about so many of the stories yeah. in the book um yeah. and you walk away from it and you can see the light there yeah. um yeah. and um, and, you know, I've also heard from policymakers. I hope that the book will help, uh, you know, as stories often do, will inform the way we think about public policy. Um, I know that uh, in the New York Times review, they were, I think they completely didn't get this book at all. I in fact, know. I think I had sent you an email yeah. about this saying uh, that this should have been a book about, I don't know, policy right. Right. or prescriptions right. or something. Right. And I was like, uh, who wrote this? I mean, they don't get right. this book at all. This is right. a story story of people that are facing this trauma. Right. It's not a book. It's not in, ever intended, right. I don't assume, right. Right. to be a, a policy uh, right. analysis or anything like that. Right. But, and the truth of the matter is, we sadly, we don't know what works. Um, yeah. And that's what we're trying to grapple with at the that's moment. Right. And so anybody who tells you differently, I think, is lying. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, just look at the numbers. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. is... Yeah. 
if you were to, again, I'm not asking you to be a policy person, but I mean, from observing this for all these years, um, this violence, the poverty, the neglect, the, everything that's happening in these, the west side and the south side of Chicago. What do you think, uh, what are your observations for, not, not so much how we can solve the problem, but what contributes, what are the factors that... Well, I, I think directly dealing with the violence, I think we've got to really begin to grapple with the trauma, uh, mm-hmm. especially, well, of young people coming mm-hmm. out of these communities. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not in any way begun to acknowledge... Uh, the trauma that people have experienced. And one of the consequences of that is that people feel utterly alone. They feel that nobody can possibly understand what they're going through or there's something flawed about Mm -hmm. their character. So there's that part. I think also, too, it's really important as institutions in the city, schools, the police in particular, need to look inward and sort of Mm -hmm. ask themselves about what they might be doing differently. Mm -hmm. Like it kind of drives me crazy at the moment with our police department that for them, every time we have a violent weekend, it's all about the sort of inability to to hold gun offenders uh, accountable. And I want to say it's that's maybe that's a conversation we should be having. But why not ask yourself what you should be doing differently? So, mm-hmm. for example, one of the things about the police department is they have notoriously low closure rates when it comes to murders and shootings. Right. Um, and so, but, and by that you mean uh, they're, they're, they're not they're, they're not finding the culprits. No, in fact, the closure rate for murders is roughly 20% in the city. For shootings, it's around 10%. And the other part, the sort of larger and more profound question um, is how do we galvanize uh, the political um, um, uh, place to, 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 to really begin to rebuild these neighborhoods and communities? I mean... The thing for me that's most sobering, you know, it's been um, 30 years, almost 30 years between this book and There Are No Children Here. Right. In some ways, is how little things have changed yeah. in these neighborhoods. Sad. Yeah. And yeah. these are these are communities that are still reeling from the 2008 housing crisis. Right. And so the question I have is, where's everybody been? Yeah. Yeah. And they've lost so much population. Over the years right, and as you well. lose and you lose a sense of hope. You yeah. you know uh, you walk out of your home in in Englewood on the south side, and mm. you look at the beautiful skyline downtown. Mm. I think mm. one of the most beautiful skylines in the mm. world, mm-hmm. and you know what's not yours. Right, right, and not even approachable, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been a just a great conversation, Alex. Thank you so much for coming in, and the book is. Is very is in my opinion is profound. It's it's a tremendous un, a way to understand this world. It's called an American Summer, Love and Death in Chicago. Alex Kotlowitz, thank you for coming oh, on the Bob, show it's today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Great to talk to you. Join us next time when we hear from the dynamic musician and visual artist John Langford. He is one of the founders of punk band the Mekons, post punk group the Three Johns, and alternative country ensembles the Waco Brothers and Pine Valley Cosmonauts. He has also contributed his talents to the popular radio podcast, This American Life with Ira Glass. And John gives us a preview of his new song about our current president. You don't want to miss this. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. Leave us a rating and review so more people can hear about us and share about Rhythm of Life on social media and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Ordauer. This has been a Rhythm and Light production.